Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, Ralph. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Fine. Thanks for joining us on Looking Forward. Good to be here. you've got a distinguished career, and I would like you to tell our audience a little bit about how you got involved in the mass media, what made you attracted to it, and then if you could briefly tell us a little bit more about your career in the mass media, and then I know at the end of your career, you kind of shifted and went a little bit more toward academia. Yeah, I actually consider myself as having had two careers, one in higher education toward the end of my uh, working life and one in broadcast journalism for most of my life uh, at the beginning. I got interested in journalism in junior high school and then especially in high school. Uh, Typical story, I was on the student newspaper and uh, in the student theater and things like that. By the time I was going to college at Brown University, I knew even then that broadcast journalism was what I wanted to do for a career. And uh, honestly, when I look back at my high school yearbook, I can see that there are some fellow students who wrote on my picture in the yearbook, as was customary at the time. Uh, They said, well, we'll see you on TV or we'll hear you on the news or something like that. So clearly it was something that was in my spirit, if not in my blood. Yeah. Um, Within, I was going to say, nanoseconds of arriving at the Brown University campus, I was up at the student radio station familiarizing myself with that, and I spent most of my four years at Brown working at the student radio station, eventually becoming the news director of WBRU-FM, which was a 50,000-watt broadcast FM station in New England at the time. Mm. Um, And so it actually had a pretty good audience, and it had a daily half-hour newscast, and it had newscasts on the hour. So there was a fair amount of journalism being done on the radio at Brown. And of course, you got to remember that the time I was in college was 1967 to 1971, which was the end or the winding down of the Vietnam War era. And of course, it included the, the summer of 1968 and the dramatic political year of 1968, And so as a student journalist, I was very involved in all those activities, covering all those things, interviewing people associated both with uh, the Vietnam War and with U.S. domestic politics. So it really became, um, I became infused with, with journalism during my college years. During the summers while I was at college, I worked as a summer intern They'd call it an intern today. They didn't call it that at the time. It was a summer relief employment uh, position at ABC Radio in New York. So for the three months of the summer, I was working with professional journalists at ABC News, uh, covering everything there was to cover. And uh, uh, I was not out on the street. I was just a flunky in the newsroom. But still, I was um, uh, associated with some very good professionals. And that helped really, to cement my career goal. After leaving Brown, I went to grad school at Columbia University in New York, the Graduate School of Journalism, one of the best journalism schools in the, in the world, and I'm very proud of having done that. And after leaving Columbia, 
didn't have a job when I graduated. That was not a surprise for that era. But within two weeks, I was offered a job at a television station in Washington, D.C., called then called WTOP, Channel 9. And I was uh, offered a job as a writer for the newly expanded, it was going to be a 90-minute newscast instead of a 60-minute newscast. And I was going to write the additional 30 minutes of news for a new anchor who had been hired to do that 30 minutes of news as well. So moved to Washington, got involved there, and this is pertinent, I think, to your audience. I moved to Washington two weeks after the Watergate break-in. And, uh, you know, for a young journalist just starting a career, you've got to acknowledge that uh, starting it at that kind of a moment was another inspirational part of setting me off on a broadcast journalism career. And then I'll I'll wrap up uh, quickly by just saying that I worked at WTOP the TV station at first, and then the all-news radio station in Washington, which at the time was owned by the Washington Post. Neither of those is owned by the Post anymore. And I became uh, an on-air TV reporter, an on-air radio reporter, and I worked there till 1981. CNN went on the air in 1980. It's celebrating its 40th anniversary right now. Uh, I was offered a job at, at CNN in 1980 when they went on the air, and this is a, an amusing part of my background. When they called to offer me that job, I almost literally laughed in their face and said, are you kidding me? Nobody is going to watch a 24-hour news network. Number one, they aren't going to watch, and number two, there just isn't enough news to fill 24 hours a day. I mean, there's no way this is going to be a financially successful operation. And I said, I'm working at an all-news radio station in the nation's capital. The presidents of the United States listen to my broadcasts, and all kinds of uh, government officials listen, and so on and so forth. Why would I want to leave this job? Uh, Well, a year later, it was clear that CNN was not going to be a a fly-by-night operation that was a a short-lived one, and uh, I was offered a job again, and I took it and remained at CNN from 1981 to 1999. And we can talk more about that if you want to, but I'll leave it up to you to decide whether to go there, what, what kinds of work I did during the time at CNN. And then in 99, I had always thought that education might be in my future. In fact, I actually consider genuine journalism to be an educational function. We are educating citizens about what's going on around them uh, every day. It's current education, sort of current history, contemporary history, rather than historical history or or past history. And so I looked around and uh, was offered a nice position at the University of Delaware, where I moved in 1999 and stayed there until 2016 when I retired. Wow. And there's a lot more I know you could say about your career at CNN. Quick question about the career at CNN was, um, did you actually get hired by Ted Turner? Did you, I'm sure you met Ted Turner, but did he actually hire you? He's, he's such an impressive man. Um, I've, I've met Ted Turner many, many times and had the pl- pleasure and privilege of working for him. Uh, he uh, I, I had my last interview with Ted Turner, but he didn't hire me. I mean, yeah. technically, of course, he did. He was paying my salary. Yeah. Uh, but a man named Reese Schoenfeld, whom Turner had um, designated as the man to set up uh, the new CNN, uh, Schoenfeld had reached out and uh, he had interviewed me first and then took me upstairs to the Ted Turner suite and introduced me there. And, um, and then I was hired. But yes, I've had ample opportunity to work with Ted. Yeah. Highly respect his 
judgment at the time to acknowledge the idea that an all news television network would be a thing and a successful thing and could be a successful thing. But also, uh, and I think probably even more than that, I respect and honor Ted Turner's decision early on, uh, in effect, to say, look, I don't know about running a news operation. I'm not a journalist. Uh, I'm funding this thing. And he had very deep pockets uh, for quite a few years at the beginning to get it started. Uh, but he said, you guys put together the newscasts. You do the news. You take it away. You do the right thing. And uh, that was always the case with him. He, he, he really never meddled around in the content of the news. It was his idea that a news channel was a good thing to do. I think he was right, and I think he was uh, immensely correct in leaving it to professional journalists to do the job. Yes, he was, he was a visionary, and he allowed you to do your work autonomously, which is a wonderful thing. He had trust and faith in you guys. He knew what he couldn't do, and he let you do it. Now, right. as, as, you, as you look back, Ralph, and, and we're going to go back to the future here, that as you look back at your, at your long career um, in the mass media, whether it be in academia or working at WTOP in D.C. and CNN and all that stuff, can you speak to some of the significant changes that you've seen? And, and were those changes more gradual, Ralph, or have they really accelerated, say, in the last five or ten years? Well, the period of my career in journalism really has seen immense changes in, in journalism, very dramatic changes. Some of them have been abrupt, rather quick, and some of them have been gradual. Uh, you know, I think it's fashionable right now to think about how revolutionary, uh, how revolutionarily journalism is changing today, and there's no question that it is. But the mere concept of a 24-hour newscast on television was a revolution all by itself in yeah. 1980. Yeah. And in the early 1980s, uh, CNN was very widely ridiculed as Chicken Noodle Network or Chicken Noodle News. Uh, many people, I'm, I was going to say nobody thought, but uh, some people did, but many, many people thought this was a frivolous activity that was not going to be successful, that nobody, it would not be in demand. And um, furthermore, there was an enormous technical technical challenge to be overcome. If we were going to cover the news 24 hours a day, that means we, and by we I mean CNN, had to be everywhere, be there all the time, and be capable of reporting the news from almost any place at the drop of a hat. Now, lots of news organizations had many, many people, I wouldn't say lots, but many more than today, had lots of people scattered all around the world and all around the country capable of reporting things. But uh, the wire services, for example, had personnel in virtually every major city in the world, but still they were covering Africa from a couple of cities in Africa. Uh, and they could go on the radio or, or go, get on the phone and, and report on the news and then report on it on the wire services pretty quickly. But CNN was breaking a mold in the sense that we, it wasn't good enough to just get on the phone and tell people what might be happening a thousand miles away or 2,000 miles away. That wasn't good enough for CNN to make its name and to 
accomplish the job that we were supposed to be accomplishing, we had to have eyes and ears on the ground in the places where the news was happening. And think about that for just a minute. That means having cameras in some of the most remote places on earth not only cameras, but the capability of sending those videos back to some central processing location, which in our case was Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and that's not, I mean, today we, we, we think of those things as, uh, you know, oh yeah, everybody's got a cell phone. You hold up your phone, you take the picture, boom, it's on the internet and it's out there instantly. That was not the case in the 1980s. So the mere challenge of bringing 24 hour a day news from all over the world and all over the country to audiences around the world was an enormous revolution and it challenged the other networks it challenged the newspapers it challenged um, radio broadcasters Um, people today think of um, BBC in terms of BBC World Service Television but at the time BBC World Service Television didn't even exist CNN was the only all-news television network for about 16 years. It had the field to itself. The good news was, of course, we had the field to ourselves. The bad news was that nobody had done it before, so we couldn't follow. There were no rules to follow. There were no... um, uh, you know, schemes, you know, how are we going to do this? Yeah. And, and that was no part playbook, of the playbook, as they say, right? There was no, no playbook. playbook. That's, thank you. That's exactly That's the right. the word we use today, right? No playbook. That's right. There was no playbook. <laughs> and so we were writing the playbook as we yeah. went. And sometimes there were successes and sometimes there were failures. And we certainly had plenty of failures, no question about that. But we also broke ground in some incredible ways. Uh, the one that most people, I think, to the extent anybody ever pays any attention to that, uh, noticed was during the first Gulf War in 1991, when the bombs started falling over Baghdad, CNN was the only network to have a live audio feed from behind enemy lines in Baghdad. And that was a result of breaking the playbook, in, essential, in essence. Um, yeah. uh, we were not relying on the Iraqi government to keep that operation going. Uh, and and as a result, we were able to scoop uh, everybody else in the world in terms of that story. Now, scoops are not all that important, and that wasn't the point of, of, my, of my saying that, but it was all these little bits and pieces of putting together the ability, the machinery of getting reporters everywhere, getting cameras everywhere, getting producers everywhere, getting the technical ability to feed the news back to a central location everywhere, and then processing it instantly. Not not putting it together for the evening news for a 22-minute newscast at the end of the day, but getting it on the air instantly, in some cases live, and certainly in many cases within minutes, not hours. Those were incredible accomplishments, and that's part of the revolution I would just like to, uh, you know, tip my hat to, if you will. Sure. Uh, again, in retrospect, you would say, oh, well, that's old potatoes now, you know, small yeah. potatoes compared with what we're doing today, and those revolutions have continued. You asked whether it was gradual. Well, here's what happened. In the 1980s, CNN, and I was a proud participant in this, was able to bring people news from everywhere to everywhere. Uh, I could travel around the world, and I've been to 100 countries on all seven continents. Uh, I could travel around the world and be recognized by people who didn't even speak my language or whose language I didn't speak, but they knew who I was because they were watching on CNN. Uh, Today, you've had the revolution where not just 
just the journalists like me could accomplish that feat, but anybody with a cell phone and a camera in it can accomplish that feat, can broadcast live from wherever they are, any place in the world, as long as they have an internet connection or a Wi-Fi connection. And that is an enormous revolution that has taken place. And then one other one that I'll highlight, we, we could talk about many, but sure. the other one that I want to highlight, because I think uh, you and your audience will find that interesting, is in the past, uh, it was up to journalists at newspapers, a, a select number of journalists at newspapers who traveled the world to report to report on world news. A small number of broadcast journalists who traveled the world, and I was one of them who did that kind of thing. Uh, a number of authors, you had the Time Magazine reporters, the Life Magazine reporters, the Newsweek Magazine reporters, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc., LA Times. They had correspondents around the world. Today, everybody with a cell phone is a correspondent because they can tweet or they can post something on Facebook or on Instagram instantly yeah. and, yeah. and many other services that are like it in other parts of the world that don't use so much of those, uh, the ones that we use in the US. And that is a different kind of phenomenon. And I just wanna highlight the important part of that, which is this. In the past, when journalists were sent out to report on news around the world, we had to ad adhere to certain standards. Some of those standards were innate in our journalistic training some of those standards were imposed on us by our organizations, the famous Associated Press style book, for example, or United Press International, or the New York Times style, uh, or the CBS, ABC, NBC uh, news styles. Those all applied to the people who were doing the reporting. Today, anybody who tweets, anybody who posts on Instagram or Facebook or any of the other services available around the social media services available around the world are not required by anybody to adhere to any standards whatsoever. There is no global style book. And so people can say and write and post videos of things that we never would have done. We would never have put a, a doctored video out there on CNN. Yeah. because that was against our standards. It wasn't journalism. But today, people who do that sort of thing, and it's done every single day, they're not required. And I mean, you can criticize them for it, but they, they could easily say, yeah, well, where's the rule book? We don't have a rule book. We can post that if we want to. It's a free country. It's a free social media. We do whatever we want. Yeah. And that, I would say, is, uh, Jeff, the, the, mo the biggest revolution that has taken place. We have gone from an era in which professional trained journalists were distributing news and public information around the world to eager audiences interested in learning what's going on. We've gone from that world to a world in which everybody can claim to be a journalist. Everybody can say and post and show videos of anything they want with no standards whatsoever. And the audience which in the past had trusted the media because that's how they found out what was going on. Today, the audience is confused. Well, wait, that headline looks just like the headline I saw in the New York Times. Isn't it the same kind of thing? How am I supposed to know the difference? Yeah, that, that's a whole other area we could get into. Excellent points. I want to ask you to comment further on that. When I've heard you speak, and I've had the privilege of hearing you speak several times, You've also talked about a change in the media, 
correct me if I'm wrong, where you said it used to be that when people were watching the news, they were getting the news. They weren't getting opinion. They were getting the news. But in recent years, and you can tell me when that shift occurred, Ralph, it's become a lot of opinion, right? And it's passing as news. Can you comment on that, please? Absolutely. Um, I attribute that phenomenon to essentially one person at one network. I think now, I mean, that's an exaggeration. It's an yeah. oversimplification, but I'm going to make the case for it. Uh, between uh, prior to 1996, I would say it was a standard in broadcast journalism and print journalism to separate news from opinion. That is, uh, there were broadcast uh, CBS Evening News, for example, had Eric Severide, who was a commentator. And uh, he, he didn't appear every single night, but I think maybe it was three nights a week for at least some period of time. Uh, the end of the CBS Evening News always concluded with an Eric Severide commentary. And it was clearly labeled, and everybody understood that when Eric Severide came on TV, he was not reporting the news. He was not telling you what had happened. He was reporting his interpretation of what it means, of what, what had happened and what it means to him. And you could agree with him or you could disagree with him or you could throw things at the TV screen if you wanted to. Whatever you want to do, you can handle that, right? Make yeah. your own decision about it. In 1996, a man named Roger Ailes came up with a concept that a broadcast news network, which he dubbed Fox News, and I, when I use that phrase, I put the word news in quotes uh, for, for, I think, very good reasons. Roger Ailes determined that there was no reason to separate news from opinion and that people would flock to a, an all-news or an all-talk network in which opinion was heavily laced within the reporting of news. And Ailes made a bet, essentially. He said, we don't need to invest the way CNN has invested, hiring thousands of people, literally thousands of people all around the world to schlep cameras places and to get knowledgeable about the politics of a place or the religions of a place or the, or the cuisine of a place, if you're going to do a cooking show or, or be, be knowledgeable about the culture. We don't have to invest in that, he, he thought. All we have to do is put some well-paid, very highly articulate, very smart, capable anchor people in a smart-looking studio in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, and have them comment on what everybody else is paying to report. So they would, uh, they would make note of what Reuters was reporting about something going on in Africa or in Europe or in China or whatever, or in the United States. And then their commentators, who were well-paid, although not so much at the very beginning, um, sat in their studios and said whatever they thought about those reports. And again, the journalism was being done by others, being paid for by others, and the commentary was coming from Fox News personnel. So he started that in 1996, and most people don't realize this, but Fox News was, was, wasn't even on the radar screen, really, until about 1999 or 2000. Hmm. I, I'm going to say 98. Let's say 98, 99, 2000. And it, it became uh, widely known during the Monica Lewinsky scandal in the Clinton administration, uh, when Fox News took on a heavily editorial point of view, a clear point of view, unequivocal, unequivocal point of view about 
Bill Clinton's behavior in the White House with Monica Lewinsky. And Roger Ailes and the Fox News personnel rode that, rode that to success. It was bolstered in 2000 during the 2000 election, uh, which you remember was the hanging Chad election, the one that was decided by the Supreme Court and not by the people of the United States. Uh, that election, Fox News decided they were going to th throw their complete lot behind one of the two candidates for president. And they, they did that with George W. Bush. Uh, and of course, Bush was declared the president uh, by the Supreme Court and became the president and served two terms. In 1990, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in uh, 2004, so in 2000, uh, Bush won, Fox had taken that position. In 2004, Roger Ailes and Fox News went a step further. They actually concluded all their newscasts during the day with a phrase like, and you can go back and get the videos to, to watch this, uh, with a phrase like, uh, and that's the news at this hour, 305 days until the re-election of George W. Bush as president, or you know, 256 days before the re-election of George Bush. So Ailes decided to take what had previously been, and in my opinion, ethical, independent, unbiased, reporting of the news on an all-news television channel to a filled with opinion, clearly, barely, I mean, hardly, uh, it was not hidden, it wasn't veiled at all, uh, channel, news channel, which was supporting one particular candidate and one particular political point of view. The sad thing to, for me personally in, in that story is that at the time, I had thought that that model would be rejected by the American people, especially, and by people around the world. Well, not only was it not, object, not uh, rejected, it was embraced by the people of the United States. And Fox News became, in about 2005-ish, you'd have to go back and look at the exact uh, numbers, became the most popular all-news channel, uh, eclipsing CNN, which had until then been the dominant character in that play space. Fox News became the most popular uh, news channel. It still is, although in certain time periods and in certain demographics, CNN remains the, the, the leader, the uh, ratings leader. And at certain times of events, uh, CNN remains the leader. And I would argue that that's because when things are happening, CNN is there. They're still there. They still pay those people to go out and do the kinds of things I did for almost 20 years, go to the places and find out what is happening and tell people what's happening. Whereas Fox News is still in the mode of sitting in a studio and commenting on what other people are reporting is happening in those places. Now that to me, that's, that epitomizes the change that you've talked about. Now, just one more footnote on that, which is your discussion, your question was about the opinionizing of news. Yes. Uh, and I want to couple this with the point I made a few minutes ago about the prevalence of social media where everybody can be, uh, can, can be a, a journalist or self-proclaimed journalist. And so if you put those two phenomena together, everybody can do it and it's okay to opinionize. Put those two things together and suddenly the content of what Americans and people all over the world see as what I used to consider news and public affairs information, the content is now thoroughly infused with opinion. Sometimes it's expert opinion, people who actually know what they're talking about, maybe someone who's been to China, who 
has spent time in China, knows about China, and therefore when they comment on something about China, you can take it with respect and you can say, okay, this person spent 12 years in China. I, I, I respect their point of view, you know. Um, even if I don't agree with it, at least I respect it, right? But you can have that kind of reporting, but much, much more prevalent today is people who are sitting in the comfort of their living rooms with a little cell phone in front of them, literally making it up as they go, putting things out there, and then other people reposting it. And the headlines all look the same. The content all looks the same, and people have a hard time distinguishing between them. But I, I really trace that all back to Roger Ailes's, you'd have to call it a brainstorm. It was a successful brainstorm, much to my regret. Yeah, it was successful. Now, just an epilogue to that. Do you feel as though what Roger Ailes set into motion has also become contagious even within the mass media itself. Forget about these people with their cell phones just writing things, but do you see this as having permeated many of the networks? Well, the success of the ratings uh, in Fox with putting opinionated hosts uh, in the position of newscasters uh, has definitely blurred the lines and others have emulated it. CNN as well. Uh, you tune in now and often you'll see a panel of sometimes as many as nine or sometimes even more people on the screen at the same time who are not reporting on something that's happening. They are being asked to give their opinions, which often last only a few seconds because if there's nine people on the screen and you're going to give them only 10 minutes to talk, nobody gets more than about a minute to speak, you know? Mm. So, uh, yes, I mean, I think you're right. If this, the, the opinionizing of, of what people used to consider news has definitely proliferated and uh, it is now a commonly accepted, if regrettable, phenomenon in all news television. And, and for that, maybe for that reason, I would say, I, I believe the all news format on television is a model that is uh, doomed to failure. We're seeing it now. The ratings of all news television have not increased very much. Uh, people are tuning to other ways, finding other ways to get news and public affairs information. And so, um, except in times of, you know, like 9-11, that type of event, people tune into an all-news channel and they, and they still tune in in very, very large numbers. Or sometimes some political debates, the political conventions, for example, still traditionally draw large audiences. Uh, the the uh, political debates that we'll have again in the fall of 2020, I'm sure will draw large audiences as well. Uh, so there's still, there's still a place in our society for all news television, but increasingly I think audiences are tuning elsewhere. And I'll be honest with you, I don't watch much all news television anymore. I mean, partly that's because I'm retired. I, I'm still a news junkie, but I don't need to, I don't need to follow it, you know, minute by minute. I don't need to be up to the minute on what's happening right now. Right. Very important points that you've made, and we may come back to one of those in a little bit, but let's jump ahead to where we are right now, COVID-19, the pandemic. Do you see that, Ralph, as having any impact on the mass media and how they cover the news? Certainly, I guess, in terms of jobs, it's having an impact. And also, what impact do you think it's having on the population? You, uh, the viewing population or the listening population or the reading population. You kind of alluded to the fact that there's been a drop off in general in people watching all news all the time or listening to it. So would you comment on that, please? 
Well, a couple of things in that question, uh, which we didn't haven't talked about yet. Uh, number one, the news industry itself, long before COVID-19, uh, over the past decade and a half, has experienced an extraordinary consolidation uh, and economic decline. I didn't brush up on the exact numbers here, but there was a moment when I think the New York Times had something like 12,000 employee, editorial employees. They are down to, I think, around five or 6,000 now. Uh, maybe, the, don't hold me to those specific numbers, okay. but the proportion is about right. Uh, and that's the New York Times, a well-financed, uh, heavily subscribed news organization. Many, many smaller newspapers and other news organizations, wire services, have fallen by the wayside, have closed. Newspapers have closed all across the country and indeed around the world. Uh, there once was a time when I'd say a dozen newspapers in the United States, you know, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, the New Orleans uh, Times-Picayune, uh, the Seattle Times, the Baltimore Sun, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, Boston Globe. There was a time when all of those newspapers had foreign correspondents, people working outside the United States to tell people inside the United States what's going on around the world. Today, you could count the number of newspapers on the fingers of less than one hand that have their own foreign correspondents around the world. It's just a symbol of the consolidation of the economic consolidation of the industry. And this uh, so, is, let me just jump in, Ralph, for a second. This is before COVID-19, right? That's what I mean. That's, the, that's, that's my point. Before, that's, not yeah. a, that's not attributable to COVID-19. That was happening before COVID-19 happened, okay? And so the result of that is that when a crisis like the pandemic erupts, and it could be the pandemic, but it could be any number of other things. It could be the demonstrations we're experiencing now. It could be, uh, you know, another 9-11 or a terrorism attack of some sort. It could be a war of some sort. Any kind of major news event like that breaks out, and suddenly the news industry, which previously had enough people to, to open the floodgates and let the cameras out and let the recorders out and let the reporters out, suddenly they're not there to be let out. They're not employed anymore. They don't exist anymore. Newspapers like the Boston Globe, the Chicago Papers, the Seattle Times, the Seattle Times is a completely digital operation now. Uh, so these, the, even the Los Angeles Times, one of the greatest newspapers in the country. Uh, so these publications are, are shadows of their former selves. Even CNN has consolidated very dramatically uh, during the past decade and a half. Uh, cons consolidating meaning losing jobs, yeah. uh, laying off people. Now, some of that is technology related. It is certainly possible today for a single person to travel to, let's say, Ouagadougou in Africa somewhere and carry the necessary equipment to take video, to take still pictures, to tweet, to uh, you know, uh, report live on television. A single person can do that these days. So you don't really need the reporter, the producer, the sound technician, and so on in order to make that happen anymore. But the consolidation has gone, gone much beyond that because, because of the diversity of sources from which people get what they consider to be in equivalent information. It's not equivalent information. As we talked about already, yeah, the social media are not giving you what you used to get from real journalism organization. Uh, unless you know where to look in social media, you're going to have a hard time finding it. And especially unless you exclude the sewage that flows through social media, 
hour by hour by hour every day, unless you exclude that from your feed by knowledgeably making those choices, uh, you're not getting that same information. All right, so now a big event like COVID-19 happens. And again, just to use this as an example of something, there was a time when major news organizations like the New York Times, CNN, Wall Street Journal, and some of the big newspapers I've mentioned, Reuters, uh, wire services, there was a time when those organizations had medical specialists, healthcare specialists as journalists. Now, a, a journalist who covers um, you know, viruses and pandemic type activities that kind of journalist would not necessarily know how to cover a Soviet American summit in Moscow on, you know, nuclear weapons or on some other issue. And they wouldn't be sent to do that. But when the COVID-19 crisis hits, those reporters would be front and center and they would have all the knowledge and all the knowledgeable sources, the people they speak to on a daily basis, those people would be instantly at hand. They would be capable of bringing to the public immediately the kind of vetted, valuable information that is essential in reporting a crisis. And the rest of us, journalists like me who didn't have that kind of experience, we would step back. We would understand that's not our expertise, and so we're not there. It's no, no problem. You know, this is all yours, baby. Take it away, okay? okay. Uh, but today, with the consolidation of the media that I just spoke about, the numbers of people covering those kinds of specialty beats have been very dramatically reduced. Yeah. The number of science reporters working at newspapers is very, very small. I was just looking at a chart the other day uh, that showed, I think, the, the New York Times has six, no, I think nine journalists who are devoted exclusively to covering environmental issues and climate-related issues. That's nine journalists. That was the largest number. Reuters, I think, had five or six, and that's a huge organization, and, and on smaller newspapers and smaller news organizations, of course, have even fewer people devoted who are knowledgeable in those subject areas who can come to the fore when a crisis event occurs. And so there you see the impact of something like COVID-19. We, we entered the crisis with a lack of expertise in journalism. And from, for several months, from December, I would say, through, let's say, March, uh, we had journalism that was was asking a lot of questions, but unable to come up with good answers, partly because the scientists themselves didn't know the answers yet, but partly also because the journalists didn't know what questions to ask, didn't know what details to follow up on. Now we're starting to see more expertise emerging. That's why, for example, uh, people are now being urged to, to wear masks, because at the beginning, the advice was, well, you know, it's not such a good thing wearing a mask. Well, now after some expertise is built up, both among the scientists, but also among the journalists, uh, people are now getting the better information, which is, well, a mask is not a hundred percent guarantee, but it's a lot better than nothing. So yes, you should be wearing a mask, you know? And that seems like an elementary example, but I think it's a good example of when a crisis erupts, journalists need to be knowledgeable enough to be able to ask the right questions of the right and informed sources so they can distill that information in ways that the ordinary consuming public can absorb it and make good public policy decisions as a result. Is it a logical extension of what you just said, Ralph, to say that in the early stages, we'll say, of all of this, that the reporters who were covering these stories really didn't have any knowledge 
of medicine or science and whatever, and they were just kind of doing this by the seat of their pants? Well, you know, in any news story, uh, there's a moment at the beginning of a, of a news story when, uh, unless a journalist was on the scene, when, it, when whatever it was happened, uh, there's a moment at the beginning when all journalists are learning, when everybody is learning. In this instance of the COVID case, we've discovered over the last few months that even the doctors and the researchers have been learning on the go, on the fly, so to speak. Now we're beginning to get enough data from all around the world so that the experts are beginning to distill that data and come up with right conclusions and useful conclusions and then convey them to journalists. But yes, of course, uh, you know, when 9-11 happened, the first reports uh, that came out uh, said, uh, you know, a plane seems to have accidentally crashed into the one of the World Trade Center buildings. There was not an inkling, not even the hint of an inkling uh, in the initial moments of that case that this was an organized terrorist attack, which not only would attack one of the World Trade Centers, but would then attack a second building and the Pentagon and an attempt at other sites as well. I mean, so over time, journalists become more knowledgeable. Sometimes it happens very quickly. Sometimes it takes time. And I'd say COVID-19 is uh, another example of that. You know, we're learning as we go. Now, if you could quickly comment on the public side of it, what would you say has been the impact, if any, on the public's use of the media, consumption of the media, where they're going for media during the crisis? Well, I think people, I mean, I haven't done surveys myself, so sure. this, is just, this is just my opinion now, but uh, I think people have discovered by foraging around in the, in the media uh, they've discovered which ones have turned out to be more accurate than others over time. They've discovered which uh, media have provided useful guidance and which media have not provided useful guidance. When I run into people still today, I run into people who tell me, oh, this is just like the normal flu. I, I, I can draw the immediate conclusion when I talk to them. This is not somebody who's spent much time with the media in the last... <laughs> let's say four weeks even, you know, uh, they might not even know that 109,000 people have died in just four or five months, four months, really, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. And so you can tell when somebody has really not been paying attention to the media, and then you can tell when people have. And sometimes, even if they have, even if they're well-informed, and I consider myself to be a well-informed person, but it doesn't mean I have all the answers. It means I begin to ask more questions. Well, wait a minute. If this is the case, then what about that? And do I need to rethink my decision about this? Uh, what should we be thinking about public policy? What decisions should we be making now? And, um, and so, yes, I, I think it has affected the public. I think uh, people have learned where they can get useful, practical, helpful information. And I think they have also learned uh, from the media, and I think partly this is, the, uh, this is the result of the kind of presidency we have right now, uh, which is they've also learned that there are some people in public office who effectively are paying no attention to the information, what I would call the news and information about, about the pandemic, and are looking at it from a, a very narrow perspective and making, in many cases, uh, not only inaccurate decisions, but and not only useless decisions, but in some cases, counterproductive decisions. I find it amazing, for example, that here we are, what, five months into the COVID-19 crisis, About, and yeah. Congress, we, we have elected representatives. They are supposed to be 
their job is to pass laws and they've passed almost nothing. They've passed a couple of laws and they were, those were uh, softballs thrown against the wall. Let's print $3 trillion and throw it out there and see if we can fix this. There's almost no legislation that is even in the pipeline right now that is going to get at the fundamental problems most of the rest of us have learned about this crisis from the reporting about it. For example, uh, I'll just throw this one example out at you. We are spending a lot of time talking about reopening and we want to get restaurants open and we want to get stores open. And I understand that. We got to get the economy moving. But I haven't heard a thing about opening factories to make N95 masks. So when the COVID resurgence that is predicted by the scientists, not, I'm not predicting it, they're predicting it, is going to happen in November. Are we going to actually have the N95 masks then? Or are we going to be in the same boat we were in in January, February, March of this year when we had not stockpiled masks and we didn't have enough, not only for the healthcare professionals, but for ordinary people to have them? What are we doing about this stuff now? Where is Congress? Why aren't they doing this stuff? And you and I both know the answer to that. The answer that is, is that Washington is effectively dysfunctional right now. Our political division have made it impossible to pass legislation, except what I call the throw it against the wall, print the $3 trillion, dollars, the, softballs. the softballs. Yeah, I, I hear you. Let's move ahead. I want to, I'm going to come back to something that's relevant at the end here. But right now, I want to ask you, this podcast, this program is called Looking Forward, in part because looking forward connotes something positive, And it's also looking into the future. So if we think about the looking into the future part, I'm going to ask you to sort of divide this up into two areas. The first is hopefully when we get through this mess that we're in with the COVID-19. And and you're correct. The scientists have talked about the very real possibility of a resurgence and of this thing being here with us for a long time. But let's say within for the sake of argument, within the next couple of years or so, we're back to whatever the new, we're at the new normal phase, okay? What changes at that point in time, a couple of years out of where, do you foresee happening as a result of this with the mass media? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I have any special insight there. You know, social media are going through their own crisis at the moment. Uh, trying to figure out whether they can continue to be what they consider to be a hands-off platform or pipeline through which everybody can say anything they want to say. I think we may be on the cusp in the next year or two of some changes in that philosophy, uh, an understanding that it is just wrong to allow the Russians and the Iranians and the white nationalists and whoever else wants to meddle and say whatever they want to say uh, uh, to an American audience to just do it without any filter, without any having to jump any hoops whatsoever. I think the social media are coming to a recognition that something's going to have to be done about that. I don't know how that will play out legally because Uh, One of the reasons the social media behave the way they do is that they are currently not held responsible for the content of what they allow to be broadcast or disseminated on their systems. If they start to be held accountable, uh, which I believe is the right thing to do, uh, or if they start to hold themselves accountable, which I believe is really the right thing to do, 
then I think we could see an improvement in the, in the, me, the mass media environment. That is, people will start to see their social media feeds filled with more accurate uh, fact-based information and less manipulated uh, information. That would be a positive thing. It would be something to look forward to. Yes. I don't know whether it will be spurred by the COVID-19 crisis and its end. It, yeah. it might be spurred by a combination of things. Yes. Uh, but I think that's a movement that is, that's a phenomenon that I think is very much underway at the moment. The rethinking of all that is underway at the moment. Which is uh, encouraging. Which is encouraging. And I'm going to say, I hope that that's the case. You know, I, I really do hope that's the case. In terms of other mass media, I'm, unfortunately, I do not believe that we're going to see a resurgence in the number of diverse newspapers in the country. Mm. I don't think we're going to see more magazines. I don't think we're going to see more outlets for points of view or for uh, what I would consider genuine journalism. I think we're going to see a consolidation of that. And while I personally, for example, happen to be a big fan of the New York Times, also of CNN, but these are two organizations, one in broadcast, one in print, that have not given up the concept of having real live human beings all around the world gathering inf fact information and sending it in and processing it in a way that can make sense to ordinary consumers. But I, as much as a, of a fan as I am, I do not think those organizations are going to expand. And in some cases, I, I have a little bit of a worry that if they do expand too much and become too dominant, then other organizations won't be able to compete. And after a while, it might be, I mean, at least theoretically, I hope this doesn't happen, but it, it might be theoretically the case that the only place or one of the few places to get accurate fact-based news and public affairs information would be a place like the New York Times. And when anything gets too big, too all-encompassing, all too all-consuming, it raises a question of, are we, ever, are we going to be denied something that we need to see because the people running that large, dominant organization for some reason decide they don't want to put it on their platform? Yes. And so, I, I mean, that's not necessarily something looking positive, but I think that is a, a road sign to be aware of as we come out of the COVID crisis and move into even more consolidated media. What will the media consolidation world mean for the content of fact-based news and public affairs information? Yeah, excellent, excellent uh, insight there. Based on what you said, it doesn't seem as though you would be pointing to many opportunities in the mass media for individuals who have lost their job, students who are at Brown University today. <laughs> you know, I have a daughter who went to the University of Maryland, majored in journalism, uh, did not end up in journalism. Indirectly, she's in journalism. So as you think about people who have lost their jobs, whether they were in media or not, or people who are student, young people, students looking at careers, do you see any potential opportunities down the road for these people in the mass media, Ralph? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is, despite everything I've said <laughs> and everything everybody else has said, journalism has been a fabulous career for me. I have loved every minute of it. No, that's not true. Not every minute of I it. Have. None of us loves every minute of, any, of everything. <laughs> right. But if, if I were... If I were a younger man today, would I go into it again? Absolutely, I would. It was would. fun. It was exciting. It was fascinating. I lived a privileged 
privileged situation, of course. I was a foreign affairs correspondent for CNN, and so I traveled around the world and, mm. and had experiences that most other people wouldn't have. Uh, but yes, I think there's tremendous incentive for young people to have the concept that people in general need fact-based, real, genuine news and public affairs information on the basis of which they can make sound public policy decisions, not just, but including voting for public officials. You have to make good decisions about those things, and you can't make good decisions without good information. And so being in the chain of supply for that kind of genuine, good journalism information can be a thrilling, exciting, and very rewarding career. So, so yes, I think people must and should and should be excited about entering the field of journalism. What it will look like, how will you get your journalism out? That's the stuff that's all going to be different. That's going to be, that's going to change. I was looking at some photographs the other day, old photographs, um, where we had a, I was carrying around a dot matrix printer and a, a laptop that looked about the size of, I don't know, a ton of bricks or something. Yeah. Um, and, and so the technology is, has changed very dramatically just in the time I've been in the career. Yeah. So, so I don't think you can imagine that necessarily in the future, but it's the mission that's important. It's the mission of providing sound, valid, real, genuine, fact-based journalism to people who crave it and need it to make sound public policy decisions. That's the reason to go into journalism and the reason to consider a career in that. How it'll play out, you got to just go with the flow a little bit on that. And it sounds like, based on everything you've said, there probably will be fewer opportunities, though, right? Fewer hirings. Well, Certainly at the moment, there are fewer opportunities that, that pay what I would call a living wage. I know a number of people who, you know, who, who in effect are journalists who are working for online publications. They get paid very little. In some cases, they don't get paid at all. Their work is their reward. Gig working is a yeah. big phenomenon these days, and it can be fun. And it's certainly liberating in the sense that you, you can work when you want to and you don't work when you don't want to. But uh, can you build a career? Can you have a family that depends on you for income? There are going to be fewer of those kinds of jobs. But the, but the good part of that, the plus side of that is, in my opinion, there'll be fewer, maybe there'll be fewer jobs, but for people who are really good and who can rise to the top and get to an organization that will pay them to fly around the world, like, like CNN paid me to do. Uh, if you can get to one of those positions, you'll have an immensely rewarding career. Wow. I want to ask you one last question, and it's not an insignificant one. It's the one I've been holding off on based on everything you've said. So where does Ralph Begleiter suggest, if he puts on his objective hat, where does Ralph Begleiter suggest that people who want to be in the know who want to get those facts to make those decisions, not hear a bunch of malarkey, what are the reputable mass media outlets, whether they be print or radio or TV? Well, Can you give us some I, examples? I get that question often. You know, everybody has to make their own choices about how they consume media. The first point I would make is that it really is important to consume media. It yeah. is wrong to just throw up your hands and say, I'm sick of all this stuff. I don't want to hear it. I'm just, I don't care about it. I mean, I don't, I don't want to know, you know, that's wrong. People need to know 
and they need to make their decisions on the basis of what they know. They, they shouldn't just walk into a voting booth uh, or, or make speeches or write letters to an editor or whatever they do or protest or whatever, whatever action they take. They shouldn't do it on the basis of inaccurate or incomplete information. So, so the first thing I would say is don't throw up your hands and say, I don't want to know. You need to know. You should want to know and you should know. Okay. Now, what, what should you consume? Well, I mean, I'm an older guy, right? So I'm not that big a fan of the PBS NewsHour. Uh, I understand that many people of my age are fans of, that, of the PBS NewsHour. I'm a little embarrassed, actually, that public television in the United States cannot produce the kind of quality newscast that public television produces in many other countries in the world, many other democracies in the world. Um, NPR, I think, is about the best broadcast news organization there is in the United States, hmm. broadcast news. Yes. Uh, CNN, I think, is still the quality all-news television operation, despite some of its flaws, and I acknowledge the flaws. The Wall Street Journal has an outstanding news writing staff. If you like their editorial and read their editorials too, that's fine by all means, but, the, but don't dismiss the Wall Street Journal's news side for its, if you disagree with its editorial side. Good point. Uh, the New York Times, I think, is probably the single most useful information supply, contemporary current affairs information supply operation in the world. And in that, and for, on that point, I just want to say, yes, I'm talking about breaking news. Yes, of course, they, they cover breaking news. But they also have the money and the supply of high-quality researchers, writers, graphic artists, digital representers, uh, digital producers. They have a staff of people who not only cover breaking news, but also can dig into topics and uncover news that we didn't even know was happening. And so to me, the New York Times is still like, uh, you know, it's a gold standard in terms of in terms of journalism. They do a lot of other things that I, I could live without, uh, although I have to admit I'm, I'm addicted to some of their online games, particularly now during the COVID uh, crisis. Okay. Uh, but do we need the New York Times crossword? You know, probably not, but I'm going to get in trouble for saying that because I know <laughs> how many people uh, yeah. love it. And frankly, the crossword and the cooking channel, uh, it's not a channel, but they, they call it a channel, the cooking uh, services that the New York Times <laughs> supplies, the, the, ref, the menus and the uh, recipes and so on are enormously popular and they're revenue generators for the Times. So that's fine with me. Important. If they're making money on the crosswords and they're plowing it into news, that's okay with me. You know, yeah. other broadcast, I mean, it's still the case that CBS, NBC and ABC, they still have broadcast journalists out there in a lot of places, nowhere near as many places as they used to, then um, they're not as good as they used to be. I mean, CBS was the gold standard of broadcast news uh, for many years. It's no longer that anymore. Uh, let's see, what else? You know, and then in terms of social media, I think the big thing is for people to be careful about your news feed. Pay attention to stories that are recommended by people you trust. And don't even click on this, the stuff that comes past your feed that you have no idea where, where this is coming from. It's not somebody you trust. You've never heard of it before. It, it may be funny as heck, but it's, it, it strikes you as odd or maybe not true. Don't even click on it. So you can get news and public affairs information from social media, but you have to spend a lot more time doing it than just scrolling through your feed and clicking on whatever appears there. 
Ralph, there were a few that you didn't mention. They would be the news services like AP, Reuters, et cetera. Right. Um, also BBC and right. the Washington Post. Those right. are the only And uh, forgive, forgive me for, I didn't finish or didn't, I failed to mention okay. that. Absolutely, the Washington Post uh, is a vital source of information, particularly about politics and what's going on in Washington. Uh, so yeah, I don't did not mean to diminish that one. I mean, I, I read the Post, I read the Times, I read the Wall Street Journal, and I pay attention to other sources as well. But BBC, uh, you know, I, yes, I think they're very good. Their television service, I don't think is as good as their radio service. So if you can pick up BBC World Service Radio, I think that's terrific, and you should. The thing about BBC is, in my opinion, you will get a perspective that's quite different from the one you would get from American-based news organizations. Mm -hmm. For example, if you listen to an hour of BBC World Service Radio on NPR, let's say, every day, they, they carry an hour. If you listen to that, you might come away thinking, gosh, the news today is all about Africa, or the news today is all about Australia, or, you know, look at all the information coming out of Japan and uh, Singapore and, you know, India and so on. If you, if you spent the equivalent hour on an American news organization, you'd never hear about those other places. I mean, unless there was a, unless a bomb exploded or 500 people were killed uh, or something like that, then you'd hear about it. But so BBC is very worthwhile for that purpose. So I, I highly recommend that as well. The wire services, the wire services, of course, I mean, my favorite is Reuters. Reuters has the largest international staff. Associated Press also has a very large international staff. The thing about the wire services for me is it can be overwhelming. And to some extent, everything looks the same on the wire services. You know, there'll be a bulletin or a big news flash from Singapore, let's say. And it looks the same as the news flash from Chicago or, or Minneapolis, you know. And so you have to, if, you, if as a news consumer, you have to exercise more of your own editorial judgment about what I call placement on the page. Is this the lead story? Is this one of a hundred stories? Is it somewhere in the middle? Is it a feature? Is it something I have to pay attention to because it's vitally important? Is it something I should pay attention to if I have the time? That's a tougher job with the wire services, in my opinion, than it is with some of the others, which give you the benefit, or I guess some of our listeners might say it's not a benefit, it's a flaw. I consider it a benefit of trained journalists who are exercising editorial judgment about the size of the headline or the placement of the photo or the prominence of the story, they're telling you this one's important. Yes, there was a train crash in India today. And yes, people were killed in that train crash in India. But the perspective is that there are train crashes in India every week, you know, and you don't get that by just watching the wire service. So that would be my reservation there. And I'm that's sure an that people listening will criticize that a little bit. That's, yeah, a that's an interesting distinction that I wouldn't have thought of, that the wire services just kind of put it out there. Right. Whereas some of these other very reputable media outlets will, you can tell by where it is. And the They're giving you some guidance. Giving They're giving you some, you some guidance. guidance. And yeah. that's what journalism is. And that's the difference between being, between stenography and journalism. Stenography is just telling you everything that's being said. It's just, it's a, T complete record of every word that is said. Is that good? Yes, of course. But after three hours of congressional hearings in Washington, which words during those three hours were the important ones? Tell me that. 
You can't get that from stenography. You can only get that from journalists. That's true. And good journalists who know what is the right. most important thing. Yeah, right. absolutely. Ralph, this has been wonderful. I hope that the listeners will enjoy it as much as I have, and I think they will. I don't know if at this point in your career, which you're quote unquote retired, but with an active mind like yours, you're never really going to be retired. Do people reach out to you to try to connect with you or do you just kind of lay low at this point? Well, people, people connect with me all the time. Email is my preferred method of uh, communication. My email address is on the University of Delaware website. Okay. I'd rather not just broadcast it, but. Sure. Uh, so I would let people, we would let people know that they yeah, can you, use for that right. email address. And I don't always respond to everything, but you yeah. know. Well, that's the journalist in you. You've got to be a little discriminating which news stories matter and which don't. Right. Ralph, thanks a million. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.